0: Well, good morning, Grace Polaris Church. I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving uh, day and season with family and friends. November is in the books. We even cared for the maize and blue. You know, as a Chicago Bears fan, I used to kind of like Jim Harbaugh. My affections have really waned in recent years. It's become par for the course that November earns or, or finishes well here in central Ohio. It's December 1, and I hope as you look forward to the Christmas season, that you look forward with expectancy. Uh, Thanks to Pastor Dan for highlighting our Christmas Eve offering. And as you get lots of appeals this time of year, uh, I hope that you'll consider that. I believe one of the best ways that any of us can invest in what matters for eternity, and that is the gospel to the nations and specifically where our church has had a lot of input. Thanks to many of you who uh, make it your practice to regularly and generously give to the ministries here at Grace. We appreciate that particularly this time of year. Well, 2019 is one month from being in the books. Maybe in 2019, you had a baby, and you found out the unbelievable pleasure and challenge of a little kid. Maybe in 2019, as you look back, you lost a loved one, and maybe you feel the hole in your heart to this day. Perhaps you started a new job in 2019, and you appreciate the new opportunity and the paycheck that goes with it. In 2019, you may have encountered a health scare and are dealing with the long-term ramifications of that. Maybe you finished your schooling this year and you're trying to figure out what the next path would look like. Maybe this year you retired from work and you find it both liberating and a bit discombobulating. What now? Maybe in 2019, you moved houses or even moved states and you're starting over. Maybe in 2019, You experienced some kind of relational rupture and you're trying to figure out what happened that list could go on and I'll bet for most of you 2019 presented you with at least one significant unexpected event or change in your circumstances that you would never have predicted on January 1st of this year can you identify it what's it been this year I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that in 2020, you will experience at least one unexpected additional change of circumstance in your life, and you don't know what that is, and neither do I. In fact, even this month, December 2019, many of us may experience something that we have no idea that it's coming. It's unavoidably true, life is a series of new responses. To unexpected realities. Sometimes they're wonderful, sometimes they're tragic, sometimes they simply are out of the blue. Births, deaths, job opportunities, job losses, graduations, marriages, pregnancies, sickness, financial bonus, financial loss, a new acquaintance, a friendship lost. The list of new realities is really endless. Not all of them are equal in size or in significance, but every one of them knocks us off our stride. And some of them actually threaten to paralyze us in life. We realize that the circumstances of life are beyond our control and our best attempts to somehow corral them or to know about them in advance are often for naught. New realities blindside us. And yet they demand a response from us that seems bigger than our capacity and bigger than our understanding. But cope we must with the new realities in life. Something struck me this fall as I was looking forward to the Christmas season and examining the Christmas story. And that is that new realities is really the subtext of the birth narrative of Jesus. Wherever you turn in the Christmas story, there are individuals, there are groups who are met with unexpected news That's inevitably going to change their reality the facts remain the same and most of us are familiar with the Christmas story there's a divinely significant baby born in a backwater part of ancient Israel but the effects on each of those characters is unique and it's life-changing what will they do how will they respond who will they trust and this December we're going to consider how each of those people respond to the introduction of new realities In their life the larger story changed the course of their personal life and history and in looking at them we're going to ask the question of ourselves how will we respond to the new realities that God places in our lives and the Christmas characters will be our kind of guides in that process today we're going to begin with the story of a man named Zechariah we're going to see that in order to fulfill his grand plan, God sometimes rebukes and sidelines people before he deploys and unleashes them. And Zechariah is exhibit A in that reality. The story of his involvement in the Christmas story takes place in Luke chapter one. I'd invite you to take out your copy of the scriptures and our hosts uh, would be happy to provide one to you. Just raise your hand, and we've got some people who would put a Bible in your hand. On loan to you, if you have a Bible at home and just forgot it, you can return that at the back. Or if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We want you to read the Word of God, especially in a season like this. Luke chapter 1. And in this story about the man named Zechariah, we're going to see that even our doubt doesn't derail God's plans. Even our disobedience doesn't do so. Because in this story, God uses even the disobedience of Zechariah to highlight his glory. God will fulfill his promises, even, especially even, if individuals stand in the way. And it begs the question for us, if God is like that for them, then what does that mean for me? What has God done for us? What will God do for us? What is God doing in my life either because of me or especially in spite of me? My desire is that this ancient Christmas story will show its ongoing power in our lives in particular ways. That the same God we see who has the same power still makes his promises come true in our lives. But in order to make this Relevant and personal to us. We should never forget the cosmic scope of the Christmas story Christmas shines the spotlight on the fact that God keeps his promises and and especially the ultimate promise to send someone to redeem his people from their sins Christmas shows that God will go to unthinkable lengths in order to forgive sins to reconcile people with himself and he does that by sending a Savior and that Savior comes in the form of of a little baby who lights up history and literally lights up the sky at his birth. The Christmas characters experience it. The Bible tells us it. Zechariah sees it firsthand. And the question for us is, will we see it too? Hope you have your copy of the worship program on the back. There is an outline there. And the first point in our look at Luke chapter 1 is Zechariah's calling and his conundrum. And we need a little background for Zechariah. He was a Jewish priest. All the events, all of the failures of the Old Testament era are in the rearview mirror. And it seems for Zechariah and his people that God had gone silent. The the nation of Israel was subjugated to the Roman Empire. They were a forgotten region to the rest of the world. Judaism seemed to have had its day in the sun, and now that sun was setting. And it seemed like God had left them by the wayside. For 400 years, Zechariah and his compatriots there had heard seemingly nothing from God. And in their own tradition and sometimes the corruption of that, they were ruled by a tyrant by the name of Herod. It was a dark day for the Jewish people, including Zechariah. Verse 5 of Luke chapter 1 introduces us to this man and his wife, Elizabeth. Both of them, we see, have, a, have an established pedigree. They come from families of prominence. Zechariah was a... Pr- was a descendant of the division of Abijah that we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. He was a priest. Elizabeth was from the lineage of Aaron, and Aaron was uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the priestly tribe. These were the people who led the sacrificial system, who led all of Israel in religious observance. People regarded the Levites as having some kind of special status. Elizabeth... Zechariah, both coming from prominent lineage. Verse 6 tells us about their character too. Two words here are especially important. The first is the word righteous. Righteous means adherence or conformity to the law of God. This was a a great compliment for people of Zechariah's day. It meant spiritual affirmation, approval. The second is the word, verse 6, blamelessly. This refers to their moral piety, their ethical piety, their conduct, their walk was commendable. In other words, there was no reason in the lineage or the character of Zechariah and Elizabeth for God's punishment. The description of them was as good as it gets. They weren't perfect, only the Savior to come is perfect. But this side of perfection, the report card on the lives of Elizabeth and Zechariah was spiritual honor society. These were national merit finalists in terms of religiosity. Priestly origin, faithfully righteous before God. What more could you want? And that's why the reality of verse 7 is so shocking to their contemporaries, to people who read Luke back then and those of us who read it now. Because a couple with this kind of spiritual maturity, a couple with this kind of religious practice, this kind of character, they should be experiencing the blessing and the rewards of God. The the assembly line mentality should look like this. Morality in, blessings out. Righteous in, privilege out. After all, if you live in a way that pleases God, shouldn't you expect to receive good things back? Amen? Careful. We think comfort and riches and and health and peace, these are the things that God should return to you. And back in their day, fellow Jews like Zechariah and Elizabeth would have certainly thought so, but that wasn't their story. Instead of blessings and rewards pouring in, they were actually living a life of disappointment, of, of lasting shame within their family, within their community, within their people. And their story showed that no amount of correct lineage or right living can prevent hardship and suffering in life. In fact, sometimes suffering is not at all related to any kind of personal sin, but it's given to people so that the work of God might be displayed in their life, John 9 tells us. Let's cut to the chase. Elizabeth was childless. And nothing could make up for this deep sense of emptiness and isolation and rejection that she felt. See, if you were childless back then, it was economically, it was socially disastrous. It was economically disastrous because you had no descendants late in life who would care for you in your time of need. It was socially disastrous because it was seen and assumed that this was judgment for sin. It was often seen that infertility was a sign of God's displeasure and and that the woman had brought this misfortune on herself or was experiencing some kind of divine curse. Infertility was a difficult reality, and it was a shameful social stigma. There was almost nothing worse in life for a woman. And then the Bible says they were both very old. In other words, the outlook for a change of circumstance was extremely bleak. Truth be told, my wife and I, my wife in particular, didn't have a lot of challenge getting pregnant. But she did have some difficulty in carrying pregnancies to term as multiple miscarriages in our lives attest. Our health services in this country tell us that about one in 15 women face infertility issues and one in eight women have trouble either getting pregnant or carrying a baby to term. That's a sizable group of women. And there's no amount of minimizing the pain or the shame or the grief that ladies in that situation, can feel. And if that's you, we want to tell you here at Grace, we ache for you. We want to be a family that cares for you and loves you in the valley that you experience. By the grace of God, we live in the United States, which means that we have access to the world's best resources in dealing with infertility, but that's no guarantee. Modern medicine, various treatments can help many, many women, many couples. In order to bear bear children but it's no guarantee and the weight can be excruciating some of you know that all too well but those possibilities were unthinkable for elizabeth you know what her solution was alternative methods alternative unreliable treatments and a whole lot of prayer you might notice this isn't the first time in the bible that we read about infertility This theme is repeated multiple times. You might think like I do, especially of the story of Abraham and Sarah. We read about them at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17, verses 3 and following. Here's how it reads. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, "'As for me, this is my covenant with you. "'You will be the father of many nations,' God says. "'No longer will you be called Abram. "'Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations.'" I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. Skip down to verse 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down, verse 17. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Look at me, God. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. See, they doubted God because of their circumstances. Remember, Zechariah was a righteous man. He and his wife lived in righteous ways before God. But God chose not to give them their desires, and it caused them great disappointment. Let me ask you, do you have disappointments in life right now? What are they? Maybe it's a certain circumstance. Maybe it's a failure you've experienced, a relationship, some kind of loss that is like an albatross around your soul. It consumes your mind. Let me go deeper not just looking at your life right now but as you look back at your life have you experienced a big disappointment or maybe several in your life if you could rewrite the story the script of your life what would you change what would you have avoided what would you pursue if you're honest this morning when you look at your life can you identify some deep regret disappointment in life you know where the pains never really subsided the reality of life the conclusion of our experience as human beings is this our disappointments will either make us bitter or make us better so which one's true of you what would people around you who know you say about you in light of your circumstances and there's a difference between circumstances of the past and circumstances of the present because unlike the past you have choices to make in the present how you respond to those circumstances response to God about these disappointments and what you will look like in response to him when we look at this example of Zechariah and of Elizabeth, we see that they served God even though they didn't have what they wanted. They concluded that life wasn't ultimately about them, it was about God. It was about God's glory, about God's work in their life. They decided to serve God despite their disappointments with His plan. They had chosen to think first of God, not of themselves. Here's the truth, as one pastor of our day says, if you serve God for what you can get, then you actually serve yourself. So even if you're serving God today, what's your motivation? Is it rewards from him or is it his reputation, come what may, in your circumstances? And that's a difficult question because it's difficult for God's people to trust God's promises. But that's our calling and our privilege. What's your choice? Second section, second point in your outline, Zechariah's rebuke for doubting God's promises. We've seen something about the lineage and the character of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now the drama begins to develop. Luke narrates it for us. Verse 8, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now we need some explanation here. Zechariah was a priest. Jewish history tells us that there were four divisions of priests put into certain orders, and they, they served on a rotating basis, each of them two weeks per year. But Zechariah's service here Was a unique moment because only once in his life would a priest receive the special honor of offering incense in the holy place as part of the preparation for the sacrificial offering here's what that meant the chosen priest would go into the holy place where there would be an altar of incense and of a lampstand and showbread this all harkens back to the Old Testament and the priest offering the incense would do so as a symbol of intercession before God. And Zechariah, of all the priests, was chosen with this honor. And in offering this incense, he was performing the greatest service of his entire priestly career. This was his 15 minutes of fame, as we would say. This is the high point of his career. This, this, this was like when you're highlighted at the company dinner for your service. Or when you get to give the speech to the entire student body or when you're roasted at your retirement party by a lot of grateful colleagues or when you are promoted to be department chair or regional manager at this special moment in the life and career of Zechariah God speaks to him in this most holy and most personal of places God announces something to him through him for the nation verse 11 And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. This is the normal response to meeting an angel in the Bible. There weren't a lot of warm and fuzzies. You were paralyzed with fear. It was a terrifying experience. But the angel said to him, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now stop right there. What prayer? What prayer is the angel referring to here? Well, in light of what we've just read here, it's quite likely that we're referring to what Zechariah had wanted, what he had heard, what he had desired with his wife. This deep burden, this ache in his heart. It's likely that he had asked God repeatedly for years to meet their desire. It's not unthinkable that he would ask even in this special moment. Because when you and I have God's attention, we all tend to ask God for the things that are most personal, most pressing in our lives. God, would you please heal me of this cancer? God, would you fix this marriage? God, would you save our home? but it's also quite expected here that Zechariah was also praying for the deliverance of his people. After all, that's what a priest in this situation was supposed to do. And they had been waiting for hundreds of years for God to finally show up again. The the promise of a deliverer, the promise of a Messiah, it was still at the forefront of the Jewish people's minds, including the priests. And it's almost certain that Zechariah was praying for that. So with these two requests in mind, what comes next here is astounding. Verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Stop again there. So here's an answer to Zechariah's prayer, at least one of them. God's going to give him a son through his wife's womb, who had been barren up till now. Even in their advanced age, their cry for the grace of God had been heard and answered favorably for them. It would be cause of celebration. Not just for them, but for family, for friends, for the entire community. Joy and delight used here, these words. These are the emotions of new parents, as well as a lot of exhaustion and exasperation and being overwhelmed. But their son's birth would be joyful for many. But the reason for their joy goes far beyond just the personal prayer of Zechariah. A second prayer, a a prayer for national deliverance, would be answered in resounding fashion as well. Verse 15, For he, John, will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In short, their son... Would be like a giant neon sign to the entire nation that God was returning in grand fashion, that the Messiah was on his way. It reminds us of the last verses of the entire Old Testament Malachi 4, 5, and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the parents, the hearts of the parents, to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents or will come and strike the land with total destruction. See, the nation's going to find redemption and restoration here. There would be one coming like the prophet Elijah. John would be the forerunner, the announcement of this coming deliverer. That the silent God, so it seemed, was now going to come back and fulfill his promise. I love how New Testament scholar Daryl Bach puts it in in analyzing these prayers coming together. God was tackling two problems at once. He was dealing with something absent from Zechariah's personal life while dealing with Israel's prayer and plea. God's answers sometimes come at a surprising time, in a surprising place, in a surprising way. Here it is. As God deals with his salvation plan, big picture, he's also meeting human needs personal. That's great news. Do you believe it? Zechariah struggled with it. He was both overwhelmed with exhilaration and baffled by the process. Like most of us, he struggled to understand how this would happen. He, He was interested in a sign of certainty. Like most of us, he doubted. Like many of us, he focused on his circumstances. God, look at me. Angel of God, are you serious? Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife was well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. I deeply empathize with Zechariah. See, he heard news that seemed too good to be true, and he wanted proof, or at least a sign, and I would have too. And people throughout the Bible, Abraham, Gideon, and the list goes on, ask for signs as well. People who followed Jesus in the gospels struggled to believe the promise of what God would do. To doubt comes naturally, for fallen human beings, that is. And that's the point. Zechariah was showing here that that he too lacked trust in God's word. However much you and I can relate with Zechariah, we, we can't sugarcoat the reality that he doubted, that he did not believe, that therefore he was disobedient. And God doesn't just wave that off. Ah, I understand. Don't worry about it. God calls for, he requires our trust in his word. And so he was temporarily disciplined, Zechariah that is, by God. His question was understandable, but it wasn't acceptable. And even the personal discipline of Zechariah was used as a public witness to the glory of God. There are actually only two angels that are named in the Bible Gabriel and Michael. I just had to put that out there. And Gabriel here is especially significant. Back in the Old Testament, Gabriel showed up on several occasions to announce prophetically what the Lord would do in the course of history. And so when he shows up again here, it's a sign to everyone to say, it's the same angel who announced it who said, now it's coming. What God predicted would come to pass God's reversal for one family here signifies that God is present and he will deliver his entire people the story goes on verse 21 meanwhile the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple when he came out he could not speak to them they realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak When the time of his service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I don't know how Zechariah communicated this to Elizabeth. Maybe they knew the game charades even back then. Somehow he communicated what the angel had said to his wife and her testimony shows that she understood this is an answer to our prayers. And this joy was abundant from her and from him, even if he could not speak about it. Their personal shame was removed and their national hope was restored. And in the verses that follow here in Luke 1, we see Elizabeth encountering Mary and the joy that they have to see the Lord on the move and Mary's exaltation of God and his work in her life. But the story of Zechariah is not over. We rejoin what God is doing in his life in verse 57. Our third point, Zechariah's restoration and role. Verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her mercy and they shared her joy. I believe they shared her joy because here was this woman who was barren who now has been given the gift of a child from God. But I suspect that they shared her joy for even greater reasons. That somehow through the communication of Elizabeth and Zechariah, they realized that this wasn't just the normal expectancy, pregnancy, but that God had special plans for this baby in his cosmic plans. Not only had God shown her mercy, but he was showing them mercy as well. What a testimony of her faith. And what a God to show it. Verse 59, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah. Typical in those days. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. And Zechariah couldn't interrupt here. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. I'd love to see the video recording of this encounter here. You know, there are a few things that are more sensitive, more awkward, more exciting than the announcement of a baby's name. Nowadays, there are even reveal parties where the expectant couple announces the gender of the child. I'm glad in our society that we still believe in fixed gender in the womb. Imagine that, even though we've gotten all enamored with fluid gender after birth. Nonetheless, reveal parties have persisted. Who knows, someday we might have baby naming parties as well. It's rather uncommon in the West, but in parts of our world, both in history and now, it's standard practice. Normally, we name a baby after they're born. And when it's expressed, especially in person to friends and relatives, the the verbal and the nonverbal feedback can be priceless or very, very awkward. You named him what? You're calling her what? Most of you know that all of our children were born in Germany and back in the early 2000s when we were having babies, we would typically typically get on the phone a day afterwards to call our close friends and our family to, to announce the, the birth and the baby's gender and name. And truth be told, some of our more animated conversations between husband and wife, i.e. disagreeable, were regarding the potential names for our children. One of our children, we agreed on the name. One of them, we kind of agreed on the name One of them we compromised on, and one of them we never reached an agreement on their name. (laughs) But they all four have names, and so in that sense we succeeded. If you are or will ever be an expectant couple, this advice I will give you. Don't try postpartum naming or decisions of your baby. Have that decision made long before you go into labor. Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't have that issue. Verse 62, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for an iPad, I mean a writing tablet. (laughs) And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, I should say so. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. The the liberation of Zechariah here is priceless. This temporary discipline was lifted. And Zechariah could not stop talking about this news that had been bottled up for all these months. And people could not stop wondering, how significant is this? And they recognized that God was orchestrating all of it. Zechariah showed obedience here and trust in God, which, which enabled God's restoration of him and, and great publicity for all that God was doing in his plan and promise. See, the promise of a child indicates that the promised plan of God is moving forward. This isn't a normal birth. This is all about the promises of God's redemption. And even the name Zechariah bears witness to it. It means Jehovah has remembered. Indeed, he has. Finally, Zechariah's prophecy of God's redemptive plan, we find at the end of this long chapter, this prophecy, this praise of Zechariah to God himself. In ancient Latin, it was called the Benedictus, and it's a fitting benediction to not only the story of Zechariah's life, but our time this morning and our look at God's, grand plan from Luke 1. Let's read it together as I make a few highlights along the way. First focusing on the person of salvation, and then on the person to announce it. His father Zechariah, verse 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's the prophecy about the coming Messiah, the one we call Jesus. And you, my child, verse 76. Imagine the scene here. Here's the father, Zechariah, advanced in years. He's got more gray, more white. He's balding. He has more wrinkles, more weight perhaps than any of the other fathers of newborn children. But he's overjoyed because perhaps literally in his hands is the young boy who will become the megaphone for the Messiah of God. If there was ever a father bursting with pride and humbled with the honor, here it is. Zechariah, who for months could not speak, now cannot shut himself up about the grand plan of God and the fact that God had chosen his boy to be in the middle of it and that he himself was part of what God was doing. Unbelievable. Zechariah believed. Verse 76, my child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child, John that is, grew and became strong in spirit. He lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Kind of makes you think back to a prophecy given hundreds of years before, deep in the book of Isaiah, about this very young baby to come. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, God's redemption visits his people in the person of the Messiah. That's Jesus. And John goes before the God of Israel because he goes before the salvation that's tied to that Messiah and In the Messiah God's plan his design are found so that when the Messiah comes God comes John will proclaim salvation But Jesus can take them and us into it I love the story of Zechariah because It connects with so much of our experience. A disappointed man in whose life God invaded to show off the wonders of his divine plan and to give hope and blessing in a personal way to Zechariah. Zechariah is deeply inspiring to me because his inclinations are mine to doubt and to disobey, not as an example, but as a fallen human being. But to... Embrace hope in a God who's worth following, who has the power to carry out what He's promised, to know that God's got this. He proves it with the grand story of salvation. He proves it by what He does for us. And He proves it by caring day by day, even in our greatest disappointments, with His presence. A God who can care for all of salvation, for all the world on offer to you and me, is the same God who enters into our pain and disappointment to show off His glory. Friends, God will fulfill His promises despite our disappointments and even our disobedience to Him. Do you believe that? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness to us, and we thank you that even in our doubt and our disappointment and our disobedience, that you are working out a grand plan for our good and for your glory. Thank you for Zechariah and for his example to us, not perfect at sometimes a warning, but one in whom you worked your way and who showed his trust in you. Thank you God for caring for our needs and thank you that in the process of being that kind of personal God, that you're also a God who works out your grand plan through the promised Messiah to come and do for us what we've desperately needed all our lives. We praise you and we celebrate you, especially this season, in the name of the one who came for us, Jesus. Amen.